friends. Welcome to the Ridgedale Students Podcast. Ridgedale Student Ministry is a family of middle and high school students at Ridgedale Baptist Church following the way of Jesus together in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If you'd like more information on all things RSM, you can find us at ridgedalebaptist.org students or on our social media pages. Thanks for stopping by and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. Can I tell you all a funny story? So when I was when I was first um, I'm just leave that there. when I was first like discovering Sierra Frakes, uh, we were at a summer camp. She pulled the hat down. I know she's embarrassed now. Um, I met Sierra at a summer camp in 2013. No, 2014. 2014, and. While we were at this summer camp, immediately I had this like this instant attraction to her. But I am horribly uncomfortable with talking to ladies. And so I, um, I went to one of our buddies, our mutual friend, Micah, who I wound up living with later when I moved up to Georgia. And I go to Micah and I ask Micah, listen, what information can you give me on this person? Like, what can you tell me? Does she have a boyfriend? What's her relationship history like? Like, I'm grilling this person who had been in community with her because I was way too uncomfortable with going to her asking for that information. And so I get the rundown. Like, I get all the info that I was looking for. I felt comfortable enough about what I had understood at that point. But here is the thing. I, I didn't know how to ask this person for their phone number. So I do what, guys, you should never do. And I asked uh, Micah to give me her phone number. And so Micah gives me her phone number, and I'm, I'm content enough. This is good. I've, like, I've secured the number. I didn't have to ask for it. This feels like a win for me. And so we go throughout the rest of the week, and sure enough, like the connection is real. I, like, I so enjoyed being around this person. Like It was, just, it was instant attraction. It was instant attraction. Here's the problem. At the end of the week, we were all going back to whatever we were doing. Sierra was going back to Georgia. I was going back to finish up my senior year at Florida State. And I realized that in order to maintain this continuing connection, I would have to at some point text her. But I would also have to explain as I texted her how I got her number without ever asking her, which makes me look weird. And so I didn't want to look weird. I wanted to look normal and not crazy and desperate. And so I hatched this ingenious plan. See, for the majority of the time that we were at this camp that both of us were working at, I was kind of like the the senior counselor, I guess. I was the one person who had been there more than like two years. And so I kind of took the lead on most things that we did as a group. And so I had this genius plan where I was going to text into our group me and just say, guys, this is a really awesome experience. We should all keep up. I didn't keep up with any of them. But it did give me a reason to get all of their phone numbers, one of whom was Sierra's. And so, hence the way that Sierra and I began to date and eventually marry and have two kids, one of whom is here on his first retreat ever. Samson Frakes, big baller status. So, we're coming into this retreat weekend. We've done series like this before. This last year, we did Bold. And bold was the theme that we were talking about. This year we're coming into this uh, new fall retreat and we're looking at the theme of altars. Which, if I'm being perfectly real, and if you're being real with me, is is probably a bit confusing, no? 
Like altars is not something that we typically think of. We don't talk about altars. We are not an altar-laden society. But here's the thing. We all want deep encounter with God. And so here's been the prayer. Here's been the preparation through every facet of this weekend. Here's the, the mindset that me and Kate, Joey, all the leaders that we've been drilling in over this weekend. It's that we truly, firmly believe that God has something more that He wants to do in and through your life. I firmly believe that. I don't think that we've like hit the ceiling of potential for what RSM could become. I really and truly don't. I think that there's more that comes. And that more only comes when we deeply devote ourselves to Jesus. We sang the song, you're worthy of it all. But do we actually make space for Jesus in our regular life? Maybe. For some of us, the answer is yes. For some of us, no. We don't know. Here's the thing. I think that all of us love this concept of God being abundantly more for us. Ephesians 3.20, man, we eat that stuff up. We dig into Ephesians 3.20 to Him who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. To Him be glory. We love that because it gives us this very beautiful vision of God's power. Like, man, I need this done and He can do even more than what I need done. But the thing is, a lot of times when we desire abundantly more out of God, God actually desires to do abundantly more within us. He desires for us to, to set parts of ourselves aside for Him, to begin weeding out pieces of our life so that we can have this deeper encounter, this deeper experience of His presence. It's not always that God just is going to do more for us. It's that God actually intends for there to be more of Him invading the spaces of your life. For the majority of human history, this thing, this deep devotion has been called consecration. Consecration is not a word we throw around a lot. Jordan Singh, a pastor in Great Britain, said this about consecration. Consecration refers to the way we dedicate ourselves to the things of God through special sacrificial acts. Now, we don't hear the word consecration used very often. Yeah, you're not walking the halls of your school unless you're in Christian school like some of you guys, and you hear like somebody just having this really deep, intense conversation about consecrating yourself. Unless you go to Grace, maybe Boyd, I don't know. But like we don't hear this that often. This is not a concept that we think of regularly, and yet we live in a society that is deeply, fundamentally aware of what consecration is. All of us consecrate ourselves to something or another. You play a sport, you consecrate yourself to that sport. How do I know that? Because you go to practices. Because you take time out of your schedule to go to games. Maybe if you're really devoted to it, you eat a certain way, or you practice a certain way, or you work out a certain way. You know what it is to be consecrated to something, to set yourself apart in order to deeply invest your life into this thing. If you're in a relationship, you're consecrated. I consecrated myself in ways so that I could be present to Sierra. If you're in a dating relationship right now, you know what it is. You set apart time for that person. You go to that person's house regularly. You begin to cut other people out of your, your spheres of influence so that you can be more and more intentional with the person that you're in a dating relationship with. You go to work. You consecrate yourself to your work. You remove opportunities. You remove the ability to go and do with your time what you want to in order to make money, in order to pursue consecration to this thing. And so we know what consecration is. 
but we don't often think about the way that we consecrate ourselves to God. I came into this week, like as we hit Monday of this week, I had a message in my mind that, that I was going to take this direction. It was going to be all about instruction. Here's the thing. We need to know how to consecrate ourselves. You need to know the steps. You need to know the process. You need to know all of the things to do in order to be consecrated to God. And the more that I tried to write that message, the more uncomfortable with the content of that message I got. And here's why. I knew the text that I was going to. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles 33, 34 today. You're going to hear the story of a man who deeply consecrated himself. But the thing that I kept picking up on as I read over the life of this man, Josiah, wasn't a great guide for instruction. It was a deep sense of desperation. Like Josiah wanted God more than he wanted anything else. Here's the reality for us, friends. You will never consecrate yourself to anything unless you are desperate for that thing. It's the reason we say things like, ball is life. It's the reason we say things like, this is my soulmate. It's because we want that thing that person, that job, that ability more desperately than we want anything else. And we're willing to set apart things in our life in order to pursue that thing with everything that we've got, yeah? We will not consecrate ourselves to anything that we are not desperate for. John Tyson, a pastor in New York City, says this about consecration. It occurs in three phases. First phase is cleansing. The second phase is sacrifice. The third phase is dedication. We're going to work our way through this model of consecration over these next three messages. And so tonight, where we begin is a message on cleansing. Before we do that, would you go with me to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we pray, give us a sense of anything and everything that is within us that pulls us away from your presence. God, if there are things within our life, there are things within our heart, there are things that occupy the space of our mind, that take the spaces that you deserve, the spaces that you're worthy of. And God, would you bring those things to our mind right now as we go through this message? And would you begin a process of helping us cleanse by your Spirit the things that draw us away from you? God, we ask that you would do this to our good and to your glory, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To get a little background on this man, Josiah, you got to go to 2 Kings chapter 33. 2 Kings 33 ends like this. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Amon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Get this. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. I don't know if you caught that. Samson Frakes just turned five in three years. Just imagine with me that Samson Frakes is named the President of the United States. 
Now, depending on where you lean, that could be an improvement or it could be a great downgrade. But imagine for a second being eight years old and being thrust into this moment where you are now responsible not just for the like political leadership of a country, but you're responsible for the spiritual leadership of a country. We got to get an understanding of, of who exactly Josiah was. So I want to give you like a brief just family flyover. Josiah had a great grandfather whose name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was an incredible king like reformed Israel, brought the people back into faithfulness, chopped up the idols, did all the stuff that a king of Israel is supposed to do. He was an incredible king. He left this intense hole in the life of Israel, or in the life of Judah. Judah is where Josiah's family was reigning, the southern kingdom of Israel. Hezekiah dies, and he leaves in his place his son Manasseh. Manasseh was the complete opposite of his dad. Manasseh was this, this is feeling really weird, just walking back and forth around this chair. Manasseh was this terrible king, and he like led the people into all kinds of idolatry, but even more than the idolatry that he led him into, Manasseh was just an incredibly violent king. Like he would go through and he would slaughter people, like slaughter entire swaths of his fellow countrymen. He was just this awful, wicked, evil king. Then Manasseh, at the end of his life, kind of has this reformation of sorts. He comes back into faithfulness a little bit, but it's kind of like you've been a criminal your entire life, and then like the day before you're executed, it's like, you know what? Actually, I want to be faithful to God now. And so his family doesn't have any context for like what, what we're supposed to do with life now. His son Amon is 22 years old when he comes into the throne. Anybody 22? Zach, are you 22 yet? DJ, imagine, imagine with me, DJ has now become the first female president of the United States. And we have this person who has walked their entire life only watching a king know how to be wicked. Only watching a king know how to be evil. And he watched as his dad really benefited from that. Manasseh had power. He had influence. He had money. He had status. He had anything his heart desired because people feared him and he was the king. And so Amon goes into his reign in the age of 22 and he begins to replicate the life of Manasseh that he had watched his father live for the majority of his kingship. Now the people in Judah are realizing uh, this was terrible. We don't want another king like Manasseh and we're not going to wait until this kid gets to the end of his life from 22, maybe the next 30 years, kind of like Manasseh had, we're not going to wait these next 30 years to have a good king. And so we're going to take matters into our own hands. And so the advisors that were around Amon come around Amon, and they get rid of Amon, and Amon is no more. They assassinate the king. It says that they got rid of all of the people who had conspired against him. The people of the nation got rid of all these people. And then they say, we're going to place Amon's son in the throne. And in steps an eight-year-old Josiah. Again, put yourself into that position. You have no choice at this point. You have to know and decide very quickly what kind of person you desire to become. For Josiah, he had two options. He had the way that his fathers had gone. He had the way that Amon went. He had the way that Hezekiah or the, that Manasseh went. He could walk that path. He knew that path. He had watched his grandfather leave it, live it. 
He had watched his dad live it for two years. He knew how that path went. He knew what to expect after watching what had happened to his father. He has this choice. I can choose this path that's familiar. Or he could look way back into the history of his father's to look back to his great-grandfather, but even more so, he could look back to other kings who had come before him, and he could say, I'm going to choose the path that is far more difficult because it's unfamiliar to me, but that leads to the flourishing of my soul and leads to the flourishing of my people. Josiah has this moment. He has to answer the question I asked you guys at the beginning of this. Who do I desire to become? What do I want my life to be about? What do I want people to say of me at the end of everything? When I, when I look at life in college, when I look at life when I'm raising children, or when I'm just entering into having a family of my own, what do I picture that life being like? Is it messy and chaotic and difficult for all of the wrong reasons? Or is it deeply centered on knowing and living the way of Jesus? Is it deeply centered on faithfulness to God? Josiah has to answer this question, and I think he answers it really well in two phases. First phase, I think Josiah answers it with, is he has to enter into a cleansing path. Josiah has to enter into a cleansing path. Really embarrassing story. When I was five years old, my school took us on a field trip to a farm. And while we were on this field trip to this farm, I had a moment, an accident, you will, uh, where I did something in my pants that children tend to do that smells really bad uh, and is very embarrassing, if any of you have experienced it, you know what I'm talking about, to, to come to somebody and say, listen, teacher, I pooped my pants. I was five. I'm on the border at this point. I feel like it's still acceptable. So I pooped my pants. We're at this farm, and I'm a smart kid. Mind you, I'm not smart enough to ask a teacher for help, but I'm smart enough to know that there are ways to cover up accidents that are pretty accessible to me as long as I'm at a farm. So here's what I did. I found the nearest mud pit, and I thought to myself, if no one can see it because of the mud, did it actually happen? So five-year-old Chris jumps into a mud pit. Think for a second, though. I'm at a farm. Is a mud pit actually a mud pit? Yes. Yes. Sierra's never heard this story before. I've never told this to you. No, I know. There's a reason. I'm telling it right now because I couldn't really think of anything else. And so, five-year-old Chris has pooped his pants and now jumped into a pit full of mud and probably poop as well because it smelled worse than what had happened originally. And so I find myself in this predicament where the thing that I thought would cover it up, just layering on more gross, disgusting filthiness on top of the gross, disgusting filthiness that I had already gone into, I thought this is going to fix everything. What instead happened is that I wound up having to be taken out to a barn and a hose was opened up on me to just basically drench me with water. It was Alabama, and so, you know, we're in Alabama right now. It was Alabama, like in case anybody's around that's from here. It was Alabama. That's all you got to say. I thought the thing that was going to fix the problem was covering over the filth that I had already put on myself with more filth. 
Josiah's at this path. He's eight years old and he's trying to figure out who he's going to become. He's trying to figure out how he's actually going to become that thing. And he has this option. He can begin to heap onto his life the wickedness and the evil and the filth that the fathers that had come before him had heaped all over themselves, all over Israel all over Judah, all over the people. He could begin to walk this path. And instead, what Josiah says is, I'm actually going to choose something that's totally different from the way that my fathers have walked before me. Look at this. In 2 Chronicles 34, beginning of 2 Chronicles 34, we read this. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. Josiah has this choice to make, and he picks his choice, and he picks well. He says, I'm not going to continue to heap onto myself or my country the leadership that I've been entrusted with, the filth and the wickedness and the evil that the kings that have come before me have done. The thing that's really familiar to me, I'm not going to continue to walk that path. But instead, what he does is he says, I'm going to choose a new path for myself. Here's the thing. Some of y'all may come in here and you may have a path that's in your mind right now. I will walk this path because my mom walked this path or my dad walked this path or they collectively walked this path. And that path is not something that you see as honorable or desirable. But it's what you know. And it's what's familiar to you. And it's what you see when you go back into the home that you're coming from. You do not have to walk that path. All of us have a choice in what heritage we either pursue or what heritage we leave behind. None of us are locked into a position. None of you are locked into being pegged as what your parents have pegged you as. None of you are pegged with being the people that your parents were. Now I'll say there's a flip side to that. Your parents can be incredible people. They can be awesome people. And you're in here right now and you're like, I don't want anything that they have. I don't want to walk the way that's faithful to God. I don't want to be the person that's present at the church stuff. I would ask you, man, what do you see in that, in your parents' lives, that's unfulfilling? What do you see in that that's deficient? And then ask yourself this question, is that a deficiency within the path, or is that a deficiency within an understanding of how the path goes? I know some of your stories. I know that some of you are probably in here in that position right now, and I would, I would push very, very hard against the idea that it's a deficiency in the path. We walk most in line with the grain of the universe when we walk in line with the king of the universe. So we have to choose a cleansing path. Josiah reveals this in two ways. First, I think Josiah reveals this in the fact that Josiah's desire is to please God and not himself. We see that in how unwavering Josiah is throughout the whole process. If you're still looking at 2 Chronicles 34, verses 1-3, through what you see is that Josiah isn't just called a king that followed the pathway of David. He's a king that was said to have followed the pathway of David without ever swerving to the right or to the left. Now, if you go through 
all of the lineages of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, what you find is that there were other kings. Hezekiah was one of these kings who was said to have followed the path of David. Here's why. David set the standard. David was a good king. He was a great king. But of all of these kings, there is only one of them who is said to have never swerved in one way or the other. It's Josiah. And it's because from point A of Josiah's life to the very end point B of Josiah's life, his desire was constantly brought back to what is it that will please my God? What is it that's going to satisfy the heart of my God? And how do I live into that thing most? Josiah's desire was to please God and not himself. Second thing I see is that Josiah seeks out a new spiritual heritage for himself. David was not Josiah's dad. We know that. You look at the heritage, you look at the lineage, you look at the, the, the list of kings, you know that Josiah's dad wasn't David. In this day and age, you always chose the way of your dad. If your dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. If your dad was a blacksmith, you became a blacksmith. If your dad was a king, you became a king in, day, in Josiah's case. To go away from the pathway of your father was oftentimes to go completely against what was culturally acceptable in that moment. It's why you see so many wicked kings. It's why you see so many of these guys like Amon who looked at his father Manasseh and who said, I'm going to go the way of my dad because that's what you do. But every once in a while, in the lines of kings that we see throughout Israel and Judah's history, what you notice is there oftentimes where these men who are placed in these positions of leadership realize that the way their fathers were going wasn't the correct way, and they catch a vision for a pseudo-father that they could see in the person of David. They could see that David went the right direction, and so they chase after David's life with everything that they got. Josiah becomes a devoted disciple of the way of David. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know, was David a perfect person? No. No. You get to 2 Samuel and you realize very quickly in 2 Samuel that David had some deep flaws, some deep imperfections. But here's the thing. We aren't living in the time of Josiah. You're not looking at David as your best example of what it means to live as a faithful follower of the way God's put before us. Who is the better way? Jesus. We look to the one that David was looking forward to. We look to the one that Josiah looked forward to, that Hezekiah looked forward to, that all of these other kings who looked for the best example of faithfulness had. We see it in the person of Jesus. So what's the call to us then? To become a deeply devoted follower of Jesus. To become an apprentice of Jesus' way. To live into the way that Jesus lived. Not just in the way that we speak or talk or act around groups of people, but into the rhythms of Jesus' life. We choose to walk this new spiritual pathway. Here's how we know that this is a pathway and not just some sort of like team that we jump on the bandwagon for. I was a Tennessee fan when it was hard to be a Tennessee fan. Some of y'all in here, feel me. Aaron, you feel me. Hannah Young, you feel me. It has not always been like it is now to be a Tennessee fan. It's still not great. But there was a period of time where it was really difficult to follow after the Tennessee Volunteers. And I'll be honest, I didn't handle those seasons well. There were times where I might have cheered for other teams who I'm not proud to say I've cheered for. I was a fair weather fan. 
The problem is many of us approach our discipleship to Jesus in the exact same way. If Jesus is riding high, if he's in the top position, if everyone around us thinks highly of Jesus, then we feel great about saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm Jesus' disciple. I'm following after him. But when things get down, and when things get difficult, And when life kind of pushes back against what it is to follow Jesus, what we find a lot of times is that many people are totally okay to just jump off the bandwagon in the same way that a fan of a bad college football team would. The original church, like the original people who came into the early church, weren't known as Christians immediately. We see that Christian didn't become a thing until uh, one of the churches in the middle of Acts began to be called that because they didn't have another category to put them into. The original thing that people would call uh, followers of Jesus is they would call them followers of the way. Followers of the way. And here's why they did that. Because they understood that to follow Jesus and to follow his teachings wasn't to just jump on the bandwagon of somebody who had a few statements about the way life worked, but for the most part was neutral in every phase of life. They understood that to follow Jesus was to follow after a way of life and not a team that we can either give our devotion to or remove our devotion to. If you were a follower of Jesus in this time, it meant that you lived into the way that Jesus lived his regular life. It meant that you walked a certain pathway that Jesus had laid out for his people. And as you walked that pathway, what you would find is that you began to look and act and think and speak more like the one whose life you were replicating. This is the call for us. We take on a new and cleansing path. We find that path in the person of Jesus. And we walk it as closely as we can. The second thing I think we see in the life of Josiah is that Josiah takes up desperate clearing of his path. I said before, Josiah's got to overcome a lot of stuff. He's got to overcome obstacles. He's got to overcome family history and examples that he had seen that were definitely not forming good things in him. But you also look at the state of Judah. Judah is not a good place. Idolatry is everywhere. The people are practicing all kinds of wickedness. Josiah's got to lead in that. He's got to be the person that guides and directs the people through holiness in the way of God. We look at the rest of 2 Chronicles and we see the approach that Josiah took to leading Israel. Look with me at verses... Hold on. Got to go back to my notes. Look at verses 3 through 7. It says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of, his, of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and the metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars 
throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. That's a bit drastic, wouldn't you say? Like, uh, I'm serious. Most of us are hearing that and we're thinking, okay, yeah, go into the, the, to the temple there. Like, go to the temple for sure. Clear out all the stuff from the temple. That's where God's supposed to dwell. That's His presence. Yeah, go clear that out. But going to the graves of the priests and the prophets who had sacrificed to the Baals, exhuming their bodies, burning their ashes, and then throwing them to the wind, might be a little bit overkill. Josiah takes this intense, direct pathway to clearing every single piece of idolatry out of the nation of Israel. Whatever it takes, whatever he's got to do, he's going to remove idolatry from every single space that he has the power as the king to remove it. He wants it gone more than anything else. We hear this and we may think, man, that, that's really intense. Like you, you, you desecrated people's graves to make this happen. You broke like Levitical laws in order to see this happen. You, like, you went as far as humanly possible to do this. And I think we kind of jerk back from a reaction like this to sin because in the Western church, and especially in the modern church, we've hyper-emphasized God's grace and we have massively de-emphasized God's holiness. Let me say that again. Keep, catch that. We have hyper-emphasized God's grace and we have massively de-emphasized God's holiness. God's not playing with anybody. And Josiah knew this. And we'll talk about this more as we go throughout the rest of these messages. But Josiah knew that God had a standard for life, that Israel had gone way away from that. And so Judah said, or Josiah said, I'm going to take it upon myself to do every single thing humanly possible to watch as this is eradicated from my country, beginning with myself. He chooses the path for himself, and he says, Israel's coming along the path with me. The problem that most of us run into in us de-emphasizing God's holiness and over-emphasizing God's grace is that a lot of times now we treat our sin, the sin that crops up in our life, the sin that's habitual in our lives, more like weeds in a garden and less like a cancer that's killing our body. If you're a casual gardener, you see a few weeds pop up, well, it's a big deal. I can pick them next weekend. I can pick them when I have time. I can pick them when it's convenient. We treat it like this, and over time, that'll work. If you give it enough time, the weeds begin to consume the entire garden. But cancer, you go in and you find out that you have this diagnosis, something has to be done immediately. Josiah takes over as king, and he says, this has to end now. For the majority of us, I know for me at many points in my life, even in my following Jesus, I have not taken this kind of approach to sin. I've been okay with like avoiding certain things. I've been okay with rooting out certain relationships. But we all know that there's that one sin that lays deep in our hearts that we say, you are not touching this thing. Could be our pride could be the desires that we have within our body. It could be any number of things. I'm not going to throw out examples for us to peg on us, but all of us know it. We all know that it's the thing that simmers right underneath the surface of our heart. 
Josiah says, I am going to ruthlessly eliminate this thing from my heart first and from the hearts of my people. Now here's the question for us. Here's the question. What if Josiah got it right? What if Josiah gets this ruthless elimination of sin right and we get it wrong? What if the overemphasization of God's grace isn't the pathway that's most flourishing for us? And what if de-emphasizing God's holiness is actually numbing us to something that we deeply need within our lives? What if Josiah got it right and our approach to sin should be way less like us going into small group here in a bit and saying, you know, I'm really struggling with XYZ sin for the thousandth time. And instead, it's us taking a blowtorch and ruthlessly sacrificing that sin on the altar of God's holiness. What if that's the right path? What if we've gotten it wrong as we overemphasize God's going to understand? What do we say to Him when we have to account for it? The saddest thing in all of this, the saddest thing in this notion of us sacrificing, cleansing our life of things, and us being a people who are totally used to consecration, we have a context for sacrifice. We have a context for cleansing. Think about it for a second. If you're an athlete in the room and you have your team, you have your sport, you have the thing that you do, or maybe you're in a relationship with somebody, I have watched it time and time and time again as the process of consecration to that person or that sport or that class or whatever it is leads us to cleansing something from our life, and that thing is never something that needs to be cleansed. What often happens is instead of cleansing ourselves from spending every waking moment of our life with that person, we cleanse ourselves from gathering in community with other people. We cleanse our life from being around people who are going to point us to Jesus, and instead we just point ourselves to that one person. What if in the pathway of consecrating ourselves to our sport, instead of saying, you know what, practice has been hard and today has been long, but the thing that's going to fill me up most isn't an early bedtime, it's singing praises to God. And listen, I, I resonate with that. I was an athlete. I was a serial monogamist. I constantly had to have a relationship. So I'm not talking to you guys as much as I am talking to like 16-year-old Chris Brakes, who is a terrible follower, wasn't a follower of Jesus, who was just bad in general. I lived this stuff. I would consecrate myself to anything but God. And in the process of that, what I constantly am reminded of as I look back on that season of life is that I was not living I was not fully alive. There was this numb layer that the world had placed over it as I cut everything good out of my life that would have connected me to Jesus and just constantly connected myself to another girlfriend or another early turn-in after a long day of practice. It does not satisfy. The question that we asked at the beginning of this, the question I've asked consistently through it is, what do we desire to become? Josiah has to answer this at eight years old. You as a 13, 14, 15, 17, 18-year-old in the room have to answer this at some point. We all are called at some point or another to give an answer to the question, 
What do I desire my life to be about? As we wrap up tonight, I just want us to, to kind of close our eyes. And I want us to, to really get a picture of what that looks like. And put some skin on that picture. Like really cloud out as much of the distraction as you can and picture. What is my life marked by as someone who's about to graduate high school? What do people see when they see me walking across the stage taking a diploma? What is my life marked by as I go about my days as a sophomore, junior, senior in college? What do people say about me? What do they see in me as I've dated this person for a really long time and been around groups of friends and now I'm pursuing starting a family of my own? What do people see when they look at me? What do people say when they know the deepest, most intimate parts of my life? What have I become? In the process of going after all kinds of different things, what has been deeply formed within my life? And am I proud that it's there? And I'll consider answering the question, is God a central focus to that? Or is He just an accessory that I tag on on my Sundays or on my Wednesdays? If I can be perfectly transparent with you guys, as we've prepared for this weekend and as we've thought over what this weekend is going to be about and what it's going to be like and what my hope is coming out of this weekend, the thing that I keep coming back to more and more and more over and over and over again is I want this group to become a desperate people. To become a group of people who are just who are just not content with coming in on a Wednesday night and standing like this during worship. I run the social media account for the, for the student ministry page and I have to look for pictures. I have to see what thing most characterizes the, the message that I'm trying to send as I market whatever it is that I'm trying to market to the watching world on social media. I can't tell you how many times I would flip through a picture or I would flip through an album of things and the majority of people in the picture are just standing there totally disengaged from everything that's happening around them. Not locked in, not focused, just kind of all over the place. I saw it time and time and time again as I flipped through all of these things and about halfway through the process of it, I'm just like, Lord, can we, can we do something about this? Like, can we plug people in to a desperation that says, I'm just, I'm not content with being a pretty good athlete. I'm not content with having a high school relationship that may make it into marriage, but probably statistically won't. I'm not content with just being a person who walks the halls of my school and looks just like every single other person. You will never consecrate yourself to something you're not desperate for. But the desperation that you may have for your sport, it doesn't have it back for you. The desperation you have for your boyfriend or girlfriend, they probably don't have it out for you either. 
The desperation that you may feel for being a great academian probably doesn't have it out for you either. But there is one thing in the entire universe that we will consecrate ourselves toward that will come a thousand times farther than we will ever come to Him. And it's Jesus. Jesus is the only thing that we will ever separate things out of our life to pursue Him that He says, oh, watch this. You think you came far. I will come infinitely farther to reach you. Is there a sense of desperation in us? And is that desperation deep enough for us to begin asking the hard question, what has to be cut out so that more of that can be filled with Him? What do we want to become? What do we desire to have formed in us? What will be said of our lives at the end of it? And will it be marked by a desperation for God? Let's pray.